Have you ever wondered if Will Ferrell likes to wear his I Voted sticker? I'll even wear it until the next day. Or what makes Stephanie Rule so passionate about voting? It's about what kind of country, what kind of world do you want to live in? Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and I'm hosting a new podcast called Why I'm Voting. I realized my father had never participated in any election. <laughs> That's how democracy fails. Everyone assuming somebody else. Why I'm Voting, a new podcast from iHeartRadio, available on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. What if you could learn from a hundred of the world's most inspiring women? Now you can. Introducing Seneca's 100 Women to Hear, a new podcast brought to you by Seneca Women and iHeartRadio in partnership with P&G. I'm Kim Azzarelli. In celebration of the 100th anniversary of American women getting the vote, we're bringing you the voices of 100 groundbreaking and history-making women. Listen to Seneca's 100 Women to Hear on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I asked did they get his ID, and they said yes. He was still sitting in his car. I still had my composite sketch, and I pulled it out. He had these little glasses on, and I drew the glasses, and I held it up, and I said, anybody recognize this guy? And it was Wayne Williams to the T. I mean, it just, it was just Wayne. Ironically, we, we caught Wayne Williams at 2.55 a.m. on the last day of the surveillance. When we got there, we were immediately briefed that this guy was seen on the bridge and something hit the water. It hadn't been recovered. Of course, nobody could get in that water because, A, it's 2.55 a.m., and the water current was just outrageous. Somebody would have drowned and wouldn't have stood a good chance of recovering anything anyway, I don't think. I went up to him and identified myself as a special agent of the FBI, and I asked him immediately if he knew why he was being pulled over. And he said, yes, it's probably because about those, those kids that are missing, which kind of surprised me. That was an unusual answer, I thought. That was his answer? Well, it was, you know, that's it, a paraphrase of it. That wasn't his verbatim answer, but yeah, it was something like that. And the next words out of his mouth was, he says, you know, he said, Channel 5 is really covering this very well, but Channel 11, I don't think, covers it enough. So that kind of surprised me. I remember that jumped out at me as well. In Atlanta, another body was discovered today, the 23rd. At police task force headquarters, there are 27 faces on the wall, 26 murdered, one missing. We do not know the person or persons that are responsible, therefore we do not have the motive. From Tenderfoot TV and How Stuff Works in Atlanta, like 11 other recent victims in Atlanta, Rogers apparently was asphyxiated. Atlanta is unlikely to catch the killer unless he keeps on killing. This is Atlanta Monster. I asked him if I could talk to him in my car. Uh, I told him we needed to get out of the traffic because the tractor trailers were rolling by and you couldn't hear. Plus, I wanted to interview him. I wanted to get him in my car and interview him. He agreed. Uh, real meaningful, very friendly guy. I mean, he... Was he nervous? No. No, he wasn't nervous. What was your first impression of him? 
Well, I didn't have one, other than me telling you what he just uh, kind of surprised me with the media comment and, and acknowledging that it was about the kids. I really didn't have much of an impression. I was wanting to know more about what his story was, and eventually I got it. He gets in the car with me, and the first thing I ask him to do, and uh, he surprised me again, uh, I said, can we uh, have consent to search your vehicle? And he said, sure. So we had a uh, consent form uh, that I had him sign, and he signed it and let us search his vehicle. Now, as I had walked by his vehicle, I stuck my head in the window and looked around. There was a bag of clothes laying on the floor, and there was a pair of gloves laying on the seat. And what really struck me, though, was is that there was a nylon cord, kind of like a ski rope. It was about 24 inches long, and it was knotted on each end. That rope really interested me. So I started interviewing him and um, asking him what he was out this late at night, because like I said, it was 2.55 a.m. When, when he got in my car. He said that he was a talent scout and that he um, uh, had an 8 o'clock appointment, I think 8 a.m. the next morning. But he was out trying to find their address so that he would know where it is the next morning and not be late. That just didn't have an air of truthfulness to it. Nobody goes out at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning to find an address to make sure they're not late at 8 o'clock. I found out he was an only child. He lived with his, his parents, uh, his, his mom and dad. Um, his dad was a, a freelance photographer, and his mother had been a retired teacher. Um, they were quite elderly. That He had come along pretty late in life. He was a pretty intelligent guy, too. He had a very high IQ. Word had it that he had built an AM-FM radio station in his backyard when he was about 14 in the uh, FCC. It had made him tear it down. I, I asked the guys, I said, search of his car over, and they said yes. And I said, okay. So um, I said, if anybody got any reason for him to stay here any longer? And they said no. So we let him go. Um, there was some things there that uh, happened that transpired that, that shouldn't have happened. The FBI has always been and remains uh, an institution that is very conscious of not uh, falsely arresting people. Uh, they've made mistakes in, in, in the past. Um, everybody does. Uh, it's a judgment call. But we did not that night want to violate any of his civil liberties, his civil rights. And so we erred on the side of caution. It was my decision and let him go. What wasn't my decision is when I asked them, I said, where is these things you found in the car? And they went, we didn't keep any of it. And I went, what? You didn't what? I said, what about the gloves and the rope? Because I'm thinking that that's probably part of the crimes that had been committed since the people had been killed from ligature strangulation. But somewhere we dropped the ball. Uh, I was in charge, so I went ahead and took the hit for it. I said, well, that's just the decision you guys made, and I, I'll back you. I don't agree with it right now, but as far as official, official word goes, then we made that decision, and that's, that's the way it goes. Did anyone ever see Wayne toss anything over the bridge? No, never did. But there wasn't another car on that bridge. He was the only car there. They saw the headlights approach. They heard the splash. And then they saw what, like I described earlier, as him appeared to just be starting out again at two or three miles an hour. Did you guys ask him that night if he tossed anything over the bridge? Yes. And he, um, 
I asked him, uh, you know, there'd been a splash, and, and, and I think I asked him if he tossed anything, and, and I don't remember if he said he was throwing trash out or something. I, I can't remember that part. I don't remember what his answer was, but he did say, I think he said he was throwing trash away or something, that he had some trash that he needed to get rid of, and he threw it in the river. That night, no one ever saw or found what caused the alleged splash that was heard in the water. We let him go, and at 6 a.m. we packed up, and I went ahead and went home, and uh, home was down south of Atlanta. I uh, lived in Morrill, Georgia. I drove up to East Tennessee because it was Memorial Day weekend. It was a long weekend to see my mother and basically crashed. I was totally exhausted. I slept for, I, I think I got there. It's about a three-hour drive, and I got there about noon on Friday, went to sleep, woke up at noon on Saturday, ate, went back to sleep. Though police had a strange encounter with the man on the bridge, they decided to let him go. They had no reason to hold him in custody. The bridge stakeout operation was now officially over, and Mike McComas went home to rest for the weekend. But meanwhile, investigators were still hard at work, suspicious of the man they stopped on the bridge. And by the time McComas woke up again, big things were happening. Sunday morning, I got a call from Bill McGrath. He was one of the administrative supervisors on the case. And Bill called me and he said, did you interview Wayne Williams? I said, yes. He said, well, do you have any notes? I said, oh yeah, I got a lot of notes. Well, we just found a body about 500 meters downstream. You need to call in and do your report uh, right now. And he said, and get yourself back to Atlanta. We think we got him. A few days later, a body washed up in the river just a few miles downstream from the bridge. The body was found around 11 this morning in the Chattahoochee River, just south of the I-285 bridge, where the river forms the border between Cobb and Fulton counties. The body was nude, and medical examiners estimated it had been in the water a couple of days. It was found by a fisherman. The body was on the Fulton County side of the river, but it was difficult for police to get to that part of the river. Boats were launched from the Cobb County side. Members of the special task force poured in. About two hours later, the body was brought out. A medical examiner said it was a young black man in his early 20s. The body was of 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater. The FBI now had their first real suspect, the man they had stopped on the bridge. That man was Wayne Williams. The man who has been questioned was stopped late at night on May 21st after arousing the curiosity of police on a river stakeout. The investigators heard a splash in the water underneath the Jackson Parkway Bridge. No arrest was made then and no one inspected two bags of clothes, the pair of men's shoes or the gloves seen inside the station wagon. For two days, the task force quietly dragged the river, not finding anything. Three days later, two people in a canoe did the nude body of Nathaniel Cater a mile downstream from the South Cobb Bridge. Within a matter of minutes, news stations formed the river where Nathaniel Cater's body was found. And it wasn't long after that the media discovered the name Wayne Williams. Though no arrests had been made, news stations released his name anyways. To anyone who's been anywhere even close to the non-suspect's home, it's obvious he doesn't have any privacy anymore. In spite of his pleas to remain anonymous, and in spite of the police begging the media to use restraint, most have released his name anyway. Reporters and camera crews from all around the nation lined up outside the home of Wayne Williams, anxiously awaiting for something to happen. A horde of police, news reporters, and photographers smothered this quiet neighborhood. The media didn't want to miss any arrest that so far hasn't happened. 
And with this man now under the national spotlight, the FBI's investigation was sent into overdrive. Two FBI agents and two detectives with the Atlanta Police Department sat perched on their cars, guns visible, never taking their eyes off the modest home in northwest Atlanta. The mother, father, and son inside became a family under siege in their own home. At around 10 this morning, the man's father came out of the house, pushed the cameras away with his commanding presence, and silently walked toward the police. Without saying a word, he signaled them to follow him into the house. Have they asked you to leave? Do they have anything? A confession? The nation was glued to their TVs as reporters scrambled to find more information on the man in question for the murder of Atlanta's children. Everyone wanted to know who was Wayne Williams. Wayne Williams is an Atlantan born and bred, 23 years old, a product of the city's public school system. He went to Anderson Park Elementary School and graduated from Frederick Douglass High School on Hightower Road, Northwest. People who know Williams say he is a highly intelligent young man, a good student when he was in school. That opinion is echoed by Williams' seventh grade teacher, Archie Wilson, who Williams continues to list as a personal reference on his resume. Those who knew Wayne Williams were completely shocked. As a student, he was extremely bright, uh, very intelligent young man, quiet, uh, very uh, respectful, honest student, very dependable, just an ideal student. Williams' resume lists a number of clubs and organizations he says he belonged to in high school, National Honor Society, ROTC Rifle Team. But his high school class yearbook does not show him in any of the organization pictures. Williams' acquaintances say he is one who tends to exaggerate his accomplishments and his contacts. His resume's list of professional references includes many familiar names in the local media. Most of those references say they knew Williams only briefly and not very well. But it is clear Wayne Williams is a bright and ambitious person. He started a radio station in his parents' home when he was only 12. In his teens, he spent time hanging around many of the city's radio stations, doing odd jobs, mostly as an unpaid volunteer, and talking to the people he met about broadcasting. He was a bit old for his age, so to speak. I'm saying that to talk to a kid that age about something that you're doing as an adult and he's talking on your level, it's really amazing. And uh, as I said before, he was a likable type of individual, maybe because of the, the knowledge of the industry as far as I'm concerned. Several years ago, he was arrested for impersonating a police officer and for using police emergency lights on his car. The charges were reduced and handled in traffic court. In 1977, Williams began offering his photographic services to the Atlanta TV stations. Williams would drive the city streets through the night, listening to police monitors in his car, racing to the scene of accidents, fires, and homicides, then peddling film of what had happened to the news departments. But the freelance photography business was never very successful, and most recently, Williams says he has acted as a talent scout, helping young people get ahead in the entertainment industry. Williams has always lived with his parents in this house on Penelope Road Northwest, the quiet neighborhood that has suddenly become a constant subject of interest for the police and news media. Neighbors say they never knew the family very well, the typical wave-as-you-go-by type of thing. He's been such a good boy, as far as I know. I haven't seen nothing to make me suspicious of him. If he has really surprised me, really shocks me. Why would you think it would be a shock to you? so close and I got sons and my sons uh, one of them used to go in and work with him in his radio station. 
Bright, intelligent, not terribly close to a lot of people. A news and police groupie of sorts. That is how Wayne Williams is described by those who know him. And as his neighbors said, there is shock that this quiet and promising kid is now a major suspect in the Atlanta child murders. He was described repeatedly as someone who was intelligent and docile. The last person you would suspect in a murder. But the FBI was convinced otherwise. They continued their investigation and searched Wayne Williams' house. On Wednesday night, June 3rd, Action News learned that FBI agents and a representative of the Special Task Force had executed a search warrant and had collected potential evidence from Williams' home and car. Uh, they found an 8 by 10 sheet of paper that basically was a flyer that said if you're, um, if you're between the ages of 6 and 10 and you think you can sing or dance, uh, I'm a talent scout. Wayne Williams called himself a talent scout and he had passed out flyers throughout the city in search of young kids to form a music group. I recently found a copy of that flyer, the same one the FBI had found in his home. The flyer reads, in bold letters, can you sing or play an instrument? If you are between 11 and 21, male or female, and would like to become a professional entertainer, all interviews, private and free, no experience necessary. The FBI found this very interesting. The flyer suggests that Wayne was put in contact with young kids probably more than one. So he, he, he put himself out there as a talent scout, and that's, that's how we surmised that he was getting the kids into the car. Because when you're having that many kids and, and getting that much worldwide publicity, you would think somebody would have enough brains to, to not get in the car with somebody, but um, he was pretty good at what he did. It could be a huge coincidence, a line of work with the best intentions, or it was the perfect way to get children alone. Investigators were now more certain than ever that they had found their man. And it was time they spoke to Wayne Williams again. So they brought him in for questioning. They went out and picked him up and brought him into the FBI office. Took him in the back and there's a massive scene of city dignitaries and state and everybody in the world wanted to get involved in it. They brought him in and uh, together he agreed to take a polygraph test and we talked for a minute and then went downstairs and I did the testing downstairs in my office. Just you two? Just the two of us. The full task force and everybody was on the 10th floor, press and news all around the entire building, and we were kind of on the ninth floor, just the two of us. This is Richard Ratcliffe, former special agent with the FBI. He sat down alone in a room with Wayne Williams to conduct a polygraph test. We had this very interesting interview for about two hours. <laughs> I said, you're very intelligent. So what's your IQ? And he said, I don't believe in IQs. The polygraph, you have to have confidence in it. I think he was totally confident he could beat it. He said that. He was just totally confident he could beat it. And what you do, you ask a series of comparative questions, a series of about 10 questions, or some of them are very simple. It's everything we've discussed, all yes and no answers. It's not really confusing, it's really clear, very pretty simple and no surprises. And at that time, I ran what's considered to be the most valid format in the polygraph research, and that was the, the zone comparison test. I'll form a set of questions, about 10 questions. I'll go through that and record the physiology. And then I'll ask if there's any problem with anything, anything you need to explain or correct or no. Then you run a second time. You ask the same set of questions and record a second chart. You run the same set of questions a third time, and after the third time, then you score each one of those and compare the responses to the other responses. And then you add those scores up, and it would show either, either deception or no deception. 
and it's human nature to want to believe people. So I'm assuming he's going to pass the test. He stayed pretty much composed the whole time. He was composed and he's not really fair to say relaxed because the whole situation is not one where you're relaxed. He was very um, engaged and he was very much cooperative and participated willingly. We had this very interesting conversation and then about what happened while he was on the bridge. And one of his things that made him suspect was that every time he was asked about the bridge, he gave a different story. So he'd already given two or three different versions by the time I talked to him about where he was going, what he was doing. Didn't stop on the bridge, did stop on the bridge, threw some boxes in the river, didn't throw anything in the river. So I mean, he, he had variations of his story. He's a talent scout and he had this girl's name, Cheryl, whatever her name was, and uh, he's he supposed to meet her the next morning at 7 a.m. And so he went to see if he could find the apartment. And I said, are you interviewing young girls? at seven in the morning in their apartments and that put you kind of in an awkward position. I said, I wouldn't do that. He said, I'm not homosexual. He just made a point, I'm not homosexual. He argued that, that he wasn't homosexual. I was asking about being alone with this girl in her apartment at seven in the morning. And I was asking him why he would do that. Why would you set up an interview at seven in the morning in the girl's apartment? Discussed but that would make that. him heterosexual. Right? Make him heterosexual, right. Yeah, and that's what I was asking. But his argument was that he wasn't homosexual. People, I guess, were suspicious of him being homosexual. I said, well, I'm not accusing you of being homosexual. But we had that discussion. So I said, what, do you have a girlfriend? I said, can you? He said, not right now. So I said, well, have you ever had a girlfriend? And he couldn't name one. After a long conversation, Ratcliffe asked the big question that had brought him there in the first place. Did you cause the death of Nathaniel Cater? Did you throw Cater's body into the Chattanooga River that night? What do you say? He said, no, he just denied it. I don't know Nathaniel Cater. I didn't have any contact with Nathaniel Cater. Didn't know him, had never been on him, didn't have a body, didn't throw anything in the river. Wayne Williams denied any involvement in the murder of Nathaniel Cater, claiming that he never even knew him. But the results of the polygraph told a different story. The testimony is deceptive. And that's a first indication in two years on who did it. Wow. So you're the guy we're looking for. I mean, that's how, kind of how I reacted when I got through and graded it all out. When I got through and said, this shows deception, I'll be darned, you're the guy that we've been looking for. You, you're the one killing these kids. He said, that's not me. He said, let me see that. So then he spread out the charts. Well, the charts, you wouldn't know from what I just saw. Would you look at that and tell me that somebody's lying or they killed the kids? So he spread the charts, looked at all the tracings. So he points out and he says, what's that question right there? I said, that's pretty good. Did you cause the death of Nathaniel Cater? So he picked out that question, which is where his reaction was. You know, and then I make my call, I go out and tell the whole world, you know, that he's deceptive and it indicates that he's the one that killed Nathaniel Cater. We should start a podcast. Yeah, we've all said it. But when it comes time to make it a reality, we get stuck. Well, here's some good news. With Spreaker, all you need to start a podcast is a microphone and a good idea. Spreaker handles the recording, management, distribution, and monetization of your podcast, allowing you to focus on making a podcast. Whether you're discussing the latest moves in the tech sector or just your dating life, Spreaker gives you tools to make your podcast a hit and professional insights about who is listening and where. And as your podcast dream grows, Spreaker only becomes more useful, letting you upload and schedule multiple episodes at the same time, push to multiple platforms, and customize RSS feeds. But what about making money? With Spreaker, monetization is as easy as checking a few boxes. So next time someone says to you, we should start a podcast, Say yes and let Spreaker handle the rest. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. 
What happens when two therapists walk into a podcast and then hold people accountable for their advice? Hey, I'm Lori Gottlieb. I write the Dear Therapist advice column for The Atlantic. And I'm Guy Winch. I write the Dear Guy advice column for TED. And we're the hosts of a new podcast from iHeartRadio called Dear Therapist. One of the most frustrating things for us as advice columnists is that afterward, no one gets to hear how the advice worked out. But on our show, you will. We guide people through a consultation and then have them come back and tell us what worked or didn't and what we can all learn from it. I was raised in a generation where men didn't show emotions. I am not good at words, <laughs> but going through it has helped me grow in that sense. I've been dating a single dad for two years. His daughter, the six-year-old, uh, she hates me one minute and loves me 10 minutes later. I don't want to lose sight of the negative feelings that I caused her. I just hope that at some point she can forgive me. If you'd like to walk into our podcast, email us with your dilemma at laurieandguy at iheartmedia.com. Listen to Dear Therapists on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Though Wayne appeared to show deception in his polygraph test, investigators let him go and no arrest was made. After 12 hours of interrogation, Public Safety Commissioner Lee Brown told waiting reporters that the man had been released and no arrest made. In terms of our efforts tonight, we have not ended up with the information that would result in an arrest. A late night press conference was held outside the building, fielding questions from reporters. But as it turned out, this was a distraction. What the reporters on hand did not know was that Brown was creating a diversion for the man and his father to leave the building. Soon after, the media rushed to Wayne Williams' home in hopes of a statement from the man. And what happened next shocked everyone. Wayne invited all the reporters into his living room and held his own press conference for the nation to see. At 7 a.m., three and a half hours after returning home, the young man conducted a news conference, setting the condition that he would not be shown and that his name not be used. You will hear him, but you will see reporters and photographers. He contended that he was being harassed prior to his detainment, intimidated during his custody, and pressured to confess to crimes he says he did not commit. They openly said, you killed Nathaniel Cater, and you know it, and you're lying to us. They said that. And they said it on a number of occasions. They said it on that night. Uh, one of the task force captains on the scene pointed his finger at me and said it, and said he was tired of all the uh, BS about working the long hours, working the stakeouts, and that he was ready to pull the thing to an end. It done. They put a tail on me uh, starting last week. I made them probably in the first hour or two. And uh, in the process of telling me, I, uh, a couple of the guys apparently weren't very good drivers and I caused them to have a minor accident. And I think they were just pissed. After claiming his innocence and expressing frustration with law enforcement, he began to elaborate on his role as a talent scout, detailing his involvement in music groups. It's our job to take some entertainers, say basically from the street, polishing them up, get them professional, and try and shop a record deal for them. And we had a young group that we've been putting together since 1977, a group called Gemini. And what we're trying to do is just capture the marketplace basically that Jackson 5 had. He mentioned recruiting kids to form music groups, naming one in particular that he was currently working on that he called Gemini. Williams himself did not exactly go into hiding. He did on several occasions call local reporters. He led police surveillance on some wild goose chases passing by Commissioner Brown's and Mayor Jackson's houses. Was this the man who was killing Atlanta's children or just a local talent scout who was simply at the wrong place at the wrong time? 
The FBI had gone through countless leads over the past two years, but in their eyes, the one that made the most sense was Wayne Williams. When you work a case that long with that many people, there's going to be a lot of theories, a lot of names, a lot of people that you have to check and wash out. I mean, it's, it's quite an ordeal. Uh, so there were a lot of theories out there, but uh, none of them had the substance of Wayne Williams. What they had on Williams was almost entirely circumstantial. I'm not sure that we had a, a, a gigantic case when it comes to physical evidence, but we had a, a, an overwhelming wave of circumstantial evidence. Except for one key piece of physical evidence. They do have numerous fibers from the man's house that match those found on several victims. The fibers. The fibers are of different colors and texture. Some think that's good enough. Others, including prosecutors, disagree. But even the fibers they found weren't convincing enough for the district attorney to press charges. Public Safety Commissioner Brown, FBI Head John Glover, and Task Force Head Morris Redding met with District Attorney Lewis Slayton for an hour this morning. Slayton's office took out the search warrants to search the house of the man police questioned, and Slayton decided last night there was not enough evidence to charge the man. So he didn't press charges? No charges filed. You might have missed that fact if you read the New York Post. Its headline this morning was sensational. But the New York Post had already run their morning paper with a very conflicting headline that read, Atlanta Monster Seized. But investigators here are worried about sensationalism only to the extent it affects their investigation. He was a freelance photographer for WSB-TV, so that was the shocker for our newsroom. As the media dove deeper into Wayne Williams' background, his story became even more interesting. In addition to being a talent scout, he had also worked as a freelance photographer for the local news station in Atlanta, WSB-TV. Monica Pearson, who worked at WSB-TV and was also anchor at that time, recalls us very well. I was just an anchor. But I can tell you from our viewpoint, it was what? You know, this is somebody we all worked with who was a photographer, but a freelance photographer, not on staff. And I did not know him, but because he worked mainly on weekends, but other people did. And it was kind of a matter of, not Wayne, he is so mild-mannered, and, you know, what do you mean? He, he couldn't hurt a fly. But then there were others who said, well, maybe. In the weeks following the bridge incident, America was gripped by the ups and downs of the FBI's investigation into Wayne Williams. But on June 21st, 1981, everything would change. Suddenly, late in the afternoon, authorities arrested Williams. As you know, we meet on this on a day-to-day -day basis. As a result of the meetings we've had today, the decision was made to issue the arrest warrant, which was done, and he was taken into custody as a result of that. Williams was taken to the Fulton County Jail. He was booked on a charge of murder, the murder of 28-year-old Nathaniel Cater. Despite his initial hesitation, the district attorney suddenly changed his mind, and Wayne Williams was charged with the murder of Nathaniel Cater. An indictment for the Cater murder was almost predictable, but the surprise came when District Attorney Lewis Slayton made the announcement. The uh, grand jury had returned an indictment in two counts charging Wayne Bertram, Bertram Williams with the murder of Jimmy Ray Payne in one count and Nathaniel Cater in the uh, second count. Wayne was also charged 
with a second murder. On April 27, 1981, the body of 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne was also found in the Chattahoochee River. The cause of death was asphyxiation. That announcement came as a very big surprise late this afternoon. Not only did the attorneys for Wayne Williams think any indictment wouldn't come until next Tuesday, they never thought their client would be indicted for the murder of 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne. The police have arrested and charged him, but he still has to be judged by his peers and in a court of law. So until he is found guilty, we have to say alleged. There was still the question, is, is he guilty or is he not? In a brief statement, Williams stood in front of Judge Clarence Cooper and said, I plead not guilty to both counts. The trial was underway, and Wayne Williams' defense attorney, Mary Welcome, was ready to fight back. There has been a serious effort on the part of um, the government, the law enforcement agencies, the various agencies, to convince the, the country, even the world, that, um, that Wayne is um, implicated in all of the murders. So on reflection, I shouldn't be too surprised that they would try to tie at least one more in. To, to she implied that law enforcement was ganging up against Wayne in an effort to close the case and felt very strongly about her client's innocence. From the beginning, many people thought the state's case against Wayne Williams was as suspect as the suspect himself. Prosecutors had no eyewitness to the crimes, no confession. But on December 28th of last year, the state went ahead with its case. Its main ingredients, fibers and animal hair that allegedly matched. Larry Peterson of the Georgia State Crime Lab began analyzing fibers found on the bodies of victims. The fibers collected were dog hairs and green, violet, yellow, and red material fibers. In particular, some of the green fibers reportedly came from unique carpeting that was found inside Wayne Williams' family home. Uh, we came up with uh, three types of fiber. Uh, some of it was microscopically found. And the green fiber I have personal knowledge of because my partner and I tracked that down. Um, they used to have an old green carpet. Uh, it was um, a shag carpet. Did you guys ever see any of that old I've shag? It. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite old, very dated. And um, it was a, a green color. And when Harold Dedman told us, when he finished with his, he took a microscopic fiber and found out that this was manufactured in South Carolina, and it was transported by West Point Pepperell to Dalton, Georgia. At Dalton, there was like 200,000 square yards of it, and it went to 10 or 12 different distributors in Atlanta. And then we came down from Dalton, and we contacted those 10 or 12, and we found the paperwork where... Wayne Williams's parents had purchased that carpet like 15 years before, so we traced a microscopic fiber from its very beginning all the way to Wayne's house, and it was the same fiber that we were pulling off of the bodies. Now that, my friend, is a piece of investigation, okay. The second major part of the prosecution's case was the bridge incident but the prosecution had no eyewitnesses. The bridge incident was the closest investigators could put their suspect to a dead body, a legal necessity called corpus delecti. Although prosecutors had most of the pieces that night in May, a splash, an alleged slow-moving car, a body downstream just two days later, it still lacked the essential part of the puzzle. Someone actually seen Williams' car stopped on the bridge, or better yet, the suspect throwing a body from the structure no one who actually saw what allegedly happened on the bridge that night. The defense argued in the courtroom that Wayne Williams was five foot seven and Nathaniel Cater was six foot one. 
claiming that it was impossible for a man of Wayne's size to pick up his body and throw it over a bridge. I asked Mike McComas about this. Wayne wasn't a great big guy, but he was round and uh, he was pudgy. I don't know if you ever had a real rush of adrenaline. Uh, people do amazing things when they've got a rush of adrenaline. And when you're not when you're not trying to be careful and hurt somebody, you can drag them, pick them up. Uh, it's no problem. Another point the prosecution argued was the sound that a car would make when driving across the bridge. What was interesting, there was an expansion plate on the bridge, and if a car goes over, the, we later determined, if a car goes over the bridge faster than five miles an hour, the expansion plate will go, make a loud clank. Under five miles an hour, there's no sound. That sound, the defense claims, is the key to their proof. Police recruit Bob Campbell, part of the stakeout team, says Williams' car did not make that sound, indicating the vehicle was traveling at a slow rate of speed. But a sound expert hired by the defense says that's impossible, that even at four miles an hour, the family station wagon makes the joint rattle loud enough for someone underneath the bridge to hear it. Suggestion? That recruit Campbell was fast asleep on the job the night Williams was stopped. And the prosecution surprisingly went along with the theory, asking Mark Oviatt if a loud splash would wake the recruit up. The expert said yes. The state contends that loud splash was the body of Nathaniel Cater hitting the water. Williams bluntly stated the police version of the now famous bridge incident was wrong. A lie. He claimed he wasn't driving slow, that he didn't turn around in a parking lot next to the bridge, that he did not throw anything into the river. He tried to persuade the jury he really was out near a bridge that night looking for a Cheryl Johnson, who still remains a mystery to this trial. According to Wayne Williams, the night he was stopped on the bridge, he was going to find a young woman named Cheryl Johnson, who wanted to do an audition for him. Earlier that day, Cheryl Johnson had called his home, and Wayne's mother answered, and wrote down her name, phone number, and address. According to Wayne, that night, he was going to verify her home address, so he would know where to go for the morning appointment. But the major problem was, investigators never found a Cheryl Johnson. When they went to the address on the piece of paper, there was no Cheryl Johnson who lived there, and the phone number didn't work. So who was Cheryl Johnson, and where was she? The prosecution claimed that she wasn't real. But Wayne stuck by his story. The state implied he fabricated the story, but Williams didn't budge from it, claiming the woman simply gave him a wrong number and wrong address. After a grueling two-month trial, it was time for a verdict. After several days of testimony, three experts summed it up in two sentences. Fiber and hair from Williams' home and car matched fibers and hair taken from the bodies of Cater and Payne. They also painted him as a possible homosexual who hated poor young blacks. The defense, steered by a Mississippi lawyer, fought back better than many had predicted. Their goal placed doubt in these people's minds. As Binder said throughout the trial, Wayne Williams is not a killer. He countered with former police recruits who charged members of the stakeout team that night in May were drinking and asleep. A loose-fitting fiber expert from Kansas came in and showed that fibers may not be as unique as the state had claimed. For 12 hours, the jury deliberated. And on February 27, 1982, the jury returned their verdict. Guilty. When the verdicts were read, William's father stood before the court and said, I feel this is very unjust. I don't see how anyone could find my son guilty of anything. I just don't see it. William's mother called the judge an Uncle Tom. The 23-year-old freelance photographer this morning, only a suspect, was optimistic. 
Tonight, as he left the courthouse, his mood had changed. He is now painted as the mass murderer. Wayne Williams was found guilty for the murder of Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne. But in addition, the FBI essentially closed all other cases of Atlanta's murdered children, attributing them to Wayne Williams. The question of race popped up a lot tonight. Mrs. Williams' remarks about Uncle Tom. Binder even said a white man would have been treated differently. And the mother of victim Yosef Bell, a woman who prodded police into forming a task force several years ago, was very disappointed with the outcome. Camille Bell, mother to victim Yusuf Bell, acted as a voice for the parents of the missing and murdered children. And she wasn't very happy with the verdict. If I believe that Wayne Williams killed the other 12 that they claim, the same fibers that were found on those bodies were also found on Yusuf's body, then I must believe that Wayne Williams killed my son. But since I don't believe that Wayne Williams killed anybody, I can't believe that Wayne Williams therefore killed my son. What it all boils down to is now we have Wayne Williams, 23, the 30th victim of the Atlanta Slains. How did the world's greatest entrepreneurs find their way to such prominent positions of success? I'm Jeff Rosenthal, and in The Art of the Hustle, my podcast from iHeartRadio, I sit down to chat with cultural innovators and magnates, my friends I've met through my work as the co-founder of Summit. Guests like co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Patrice Cullors, former CEO of Twitter, Dick Costolo, leading global conservation scientists in Samjian, and thought leaders like Tim Ferriss and Simon Sinek. Join us each week as we discuss successes, failures, milestone events, and of course, the insights and critical advice that shaped all of their lives. Art of the Hustle, a podcast created to inspire the entrepreneurs shaping our future. Listen to The Art of the Hustle on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At iHeartRadio, we bring you the best podcasts from the biggest names. Ron Burgundy, check. Chelsea Handler, yep. Questlove, him too. And the one thing these shows have in common, they all started with an idea. And now we want yours. We're looking to you for the next great podcast. Do you have an idea for a podcast? Let's hear it. Any genre, any topic, we want your voice. Pitch us your show for a chance to share it with fellow podcast fans across the globe and become a part of the iHeartRadio podcast family. Simply go to nextgreatpodcast.com to get the details and submit your pitch. In partnership with the creative platform Tongle, iHeartRadio will select up to 10 semifinalists and give them $1,000 to produce a pilot episode. Then, listeners will vote on their favorite to decide the next great podcast. The winning show will be made by our best-in-class production team and shared with listeners all around the world. Enter today at nextgreatpodcast.com. That's nextgreatpodcast.com. Why shouldn't the next great podcast come from you? From that day forward, Wayne Williams was in history books as the Atlanta child murderer. A lot of people think he's innocent, believe it or not. You know, I, know, I, think, I think they view him as someone who, um, who got caught up in it and ended up getting blamed for it. I mean, I don't, I'm gonna be honest with you. I, you know, I never spent a lot of time paying attention. I was happy when they was like, "All right, we off cold red now. Everybody can go out and play again." So, is Wayne Williams the Atlanta child murderer? 
Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt, Wayne Williams was the child murderer. I'm not saying he did all of them. He was convicted on two because we didn't have enough evidence to take him on the rest of them. We attributed the the, uh, the lion's share of them to him. I mean, he he definitely did more than just two, but that was the only two that we had enough to take him to court and convict him on. I didn't have any problem with the way it was concluded. You know, you know, it's like if you catch a guy with a hundred bank robberies, he's not going to get any more. I mean, you know, you can only sentence a guy so many times to so much. So two life sentences is the same as ten life sentences. Life is life. It really wasn't over. It really wasn't over. Today, it's not over. Wayne Williams says he didn't do it. Uh, the families don't believe he did it. Law enforcement says he did it. The court said he did the adults. But no one has ever convicted him on killing the children, the boys who were found suffocated. I still think it's a story that needs to be investigated. I would love, and I'm glad you're doing this, to open up the case again and see what you can find all these years later. Remember Russell Baltazar, whose brother Patrick was found brutally murdered? I asked him about this. I think he got taken as an escape goat to shut down the problems we had. I don't believe that he was tried with all evidence and said you are guilty for killing all of those kids. I think it was a way for them to slow it down. Somebody better find somebody to put in the jailhouse so make a lot of these people start being quiet. We, the jury, find the defendant, Wayne Bertram Williams, guilty on count number one. The arrest of Wayne Williams appeared to solve one of the biggest multiple murder mysteries in American history. The closing of the cases effectively branded Wayne Williams the Atlanta child murderer. On nearly every list of American serial killers, you'll find the name Wayne Williams. Wayne Williams remains in jail and may well be there for the rest of his life. In 1985, they made a movie about it, starring Morgan Freeman. Was this the man who choked the life out of, shot, bludgeoned, and drowned 28 human beings? The coach, you buy sentences the defendant, Mr. Wayne Bertram Williams, to the custody of the State Board of Corrections, where he is to serve two life sentences. And over the next three decades, it continued to make its way into pop culture, especially in the hip-hop community, being so closely linked to Atlanta. Andre 3000 from Outkast even has a verse on Travis Scott's 2016 album. 
but a lot of people think he didn't do it. Russell Boltasaur doesn't. And he has his own story to back that up. Russell heard about a strange incident involving his brother Patrick, and it made him doubt that Wayne Williams was the killer. Spoke to several people out there, and one of the police officers, the story was told to me that they had him on tape, that he was running him and two kids from individuals to more than one person, and they ran into a phone booth. He picks up the phone and dial, I guess, 911 or call the police department, and they supposedly had it on recording that he said that someone was chasing him. Did he describe the person? He said it was two white people that was chasing him. And that's all I've ever heard about that story. I did try to call the police department and talk to someone about that tape. And all of a sudden, no one knew what I was talking about. So pretty much just left that alone up until now. You mentioned it to me, I'm telling you the story about it. I think most of us, like myself, if I knew in my heart that they proved that he killed those kids, then that would be a lot of relief for us. But I don't think they did. I realized that Russell Boltazar was probably not the only person related to a victim that doesn't believe it was Wayne Williams. I started scouring the internet for other stories like this, and one day I found a YouTube video from 2015 under the username in just us. It's a video of a guy named Emmanuel, brother of Clifford Jones, one of the victims. Okay, and your brother's name was? Clifford Jones. Basically, it was one early morning, August the 20th, 1980. My brother and I basically walked up to a grocery store for my grandmother. People had kidnapped my brother man named Jamie Brooks, uh, Horace Hopgood, Freddie Cosby. <clears throat> These guys held my brother captive in a laundromat right on the corner of uh, Hollywood Road. They raped him and beat him uh, all day long. Uh, one of the people stood in the doorway watching my brother get raped, crying, screaming, saying he wanted to go home and saying that he was going to tell his grandmother and said that the dude, Jamie Brooks, put a rope around his neck and, and pulled on the rope. And basically the man told the police this, and the police had all this information, and they still, they, they, they still blamed someone else for Clifford murder. And, and knowing why William didn't kill Clifford. So who made this? Who was in just us? Who was the man behind the camera? Whoever it was, they had been doing their own research on this case decades later. Someone I definitely wanted to talk to. After a little digging, I found him. The man who made the video was a guy named Dwayne Hendricks. I tracked him down and I gave him a call. And within the first 30 seconds, it was already getting interesting. With this shit, you know. <laughs> it's gonna be how deep do you wanna go? To get to the bottom of this would literally 
change American history. I mean, it would do so many things. When, when you just get into this and you get into like all the layers of it, the corruption you deal with, the cover-up, the actual murders themselves, who was responsible for a lot of this. There are people in high places that want this shit to come out. And then there are some people that want it to come out, but they're afraid of how it's gonna come out. And then there are some people that don't want it to come out at all because there's gonna be some motherfuckers that's gonna have to lay on the sword. It depends on how deep you want to go. So this rabbit hole is very, very, very deep. Dwayne Hendricks told me that he wanted to meet in person, but he lived in Texas, and I was in Atlanta. So the next weekend, I hopped on a flight. I wanted to hear his whole story. He was so invested, so personally involved. It popped up in the news. I just knew it wasn't right. And I remember saying out loud, they lying on that man. When I grow up, I'm gonna help him get out of jail. Those are my exact words. And my grandmama goes, if you don't sit your little narrow ass down, them racist ass white boys will kill you. And I told her, I said, well, they had to kill me then because that man didn't do it. That's one of the memories from my childhood that was just always etched in my psyche. This case, it was just something so wrong. It resonated in my soul that there's something wrong about this. Dwayne remembers seeing the arrest of Wayne Williams in the news as a child, and it was something that stuck with him. We were real close. She had me when she was getting ready to go for her freshman year in college. We basically grew up together. We had this bond and it was almost like if anything was ever wrong with my mom, she didn't even have to say something. I could just look at her and I knew. And, and she's a tough woman. So to see her crying uncontrollably to the point to where, you know, it's like snot all over the place. It was real tough. My mom was crying like every day, nonstop for like four days in a row. And she basically didn't want to tell us and my pop, you know, he, he pulled me to the side and he sat me down and he said, you know, son, this was about to happen. I'm going to have to turn myself in. Dwayne told me that he was all too familiar with injustice from a very young age. He talked about his stepdad's wrongful conviction, which happened during a pivotal point in his childhood. It was, it was very difficult because those years of your life, you're basically becoming a young man. I ended up becoming like so many things in life based on the example that he set. This was my first respectable man that I was around all the time and I could ask for advice and talk to and he would teach me stuff like, son, this is what a man does, that type of thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was tough, man. It was real tough because um, you go from just trying to figure out your body and the changes you're going through as a young man and everything else and you have all that wound up in your head, and now you got to figure out how you're going to lie to your homeboys about where's your step pops. It really, psychologically, it, it does something to you. It makes you very angry. For me, it made me hate any authoritative figure. At that particular time in my life, I didn't realize it, but 
I, I would just disrespect teachers in class. You know, I would go in class and I would just go to sleep in class, you know, because I just really psychologically didn't understand what I was going through. But it, it made me very rebellious. All this together inspired Dwayne to research Wayne Williams' story. I asked him about the YouTube video of one of the victim's brothers, Clifford Jones. When we initially spoke with one another, I cried. In the meeting that we were having, I had to walk out of the meeting a couple of times. His brother was inside being beaten and raped all day before they actually killed him and disposed of his body. He said he knew that Wayne Williams didn't kill his brother. He knew that. It made me even more want to try to do everything in my power. After talking to Clifford's brother, Dwayne reached out to more families and was slowly piecing together a documentary with one goal in mind. The actual goal was to, to make sure that we put together a piece that was going to actually highlight everything that needed to be highlighted to give the public the facts that they would need to know to make an informed decision as to whether or not they believe Wayne Williams is the Atlanta child murderer or not. That was the whole goal. Whether or not Wayne was a murderer at all. He was never formally charged or indicted for killing any children. So again, that's another big misconception, right, that comes with the case is that, you know, he's been dubbed the Atlanta child murderer. Dwayne had one main point that I really couldn't argue with. He was only charged with the murder of Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne. These are anomalies because these was two adults. This thing is like something that has always been talked about and it, 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 it won't go away until something is done about it. It, would, it will yeah. always be the elephant in the room in the city of Atlanta. A few months into making his documentary, he got a random phone call late one night in the studio. I'm in a recording studio and I'm recording a song and my phone rings. It's Wayne Williams. And everybody in the studio is like, everyone was stuck. From that point forward, what transpired? What did Wayne say? What was developing after that? Welcome to the real world, Neo. <laughs> Next time on Atlanta Monster. So you know Wayne Williams? Absolutely. Describe Wayne to me. What's he like? <sighs> Brilliant asshole. intelligent asshole that's that's the best way I could put it and I don't mean it in a uh, bad way because I'm an asshole at times
this thing is huge. It's huge. And believe me, it was more hands in this shit than me stay high. And we're gonna bring it. That was a name that the media given Wayne Williams. They wouldn't use his name, they gave him this name. Atlanta Monster. Atlanta Monster is an investigative podcast told week by week, with new episodes every Friday. A joint production between How Stuff Works and Tinderfoot TV. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Audio archives, courtesy of WSB News Film and Videotape Collection. Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia Libraries. For the latest updates, please visit atlantamonster.com or follow us on social media. Do you keep your hands on this the whole time? You stay like that. And where are you at? Are you behind me? I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. You know what that does? No. It picks up muscle movements. We didn't have that back then. Oh. So now you want to squeeze your tail or put a tack in your shooter. Oh, wow. It's pretty stiff. It's actually not that bad. No. You can go from I should start a podcast to actually starting a podcast with Spreaker. Spreaker's tools allow you to record, manage, distribute, and monetize any podcast idea, whether it's about your business or even your cat. And as your podcast grows, Spreaker helps you manage your success and even monetize it. That means all you need to get started is a microphone and a really good idea. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. Hi, I'm Heidi Murkoff, host of What to Expect, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. When I first wrote What to Expect When You're Expecting, I was pregnant with my daughter, Emma, and my mission was simple to help parents know what to expect every step of the way. That mission has grown a lot, but it hasn't changed. Fast forward, now Emma's a mom. Hey guys, we're teaming up to answer your biggest pregnancy and parenting questions. From breastfeeding to sleep to tackling tantrums. Motherhood is the ultimate sisterhood, but it can be overwhelming if you don't know what to expect. Listen to What to Expect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Emma, are you ready? Mom, I was born ready.